Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Healthcare Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus. My name is Clarice Mathis, and I am a physician assistant in orthopedics based in New York City and also a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee. This week, it's my pleasure to be co-hosting the podcast with my good friend and podcast extraordinaire producer, Rolf Taylor. Thank you, Clarice, and, and welcome back to the podcast. You know, the last time you were on here was as a guest talking about your profession and career as a physician assistant in the great New York City. Um, you gave a really good interview. So congratulations on taking the lead now. Uh, I just want to mention that all our participants on the podcast today are representing their own personal views, thoughts, and communications, not representing views or positions of their respective organizations. So Clarice, you titled this podcast, Black Physician Assistants Matter. Why this specific title? Well, I feel like this is definitely an area that should be touched upon. You know, being a Black PA, it's so far and few of us, you know, we are not very represented in the field. And I think that, you know, especially with the climate that we're in right now, I think this is even more of a targeted area that we need to start expanding on, especially since, you know, a lot of people are, one, still not even familiar with what the, you know, physician assistant role is. So one, we need to highlight that. Two, we need to definitely um, start targeting and just exposing ourselves as being uh, a Black PA and how we are very helpful in the field as far as, you know, reducing healthcare disparities, also just exposing and discussing some of the healthcare disparities that are affected by, you know, Black people. And we need that Black representation um, in medicine in general and as a PA, how we can kind of combine that so we can start to kind of combat the situation that we have. That is what the Health Disparities Podcast is all about. So it's going to be a great discussion. Let's welcome the first of our two guests today. Um, hello to Sandra Middleton, MHS, PAC. Um, Sandra is Associate Director at Physician Assistant Manhattan, um, Assistant Professor at Physician Assistant Manhattan, and uh, I believe you have a specialization in infectious diseases. Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast. Thank you, and thank you for um, inviting me to be here today. Um, I am very excited to talk about this. I'm a little passionate <laughs> about this topic, and uh, Clarice and I have known each other for a while, so she knows some of my views on this, and we had had some offline discussions, so I'm absolutely looking forward to this discussion. Thank you, Sandra, for definitely being here. Can I just add a tid point? This is my mentor. This has been my mentor since PA school. She was my PA school advisor. So I have known her since 2008, and she has gone from advisor, mentor, still mentor, to colleague, but she's still my mentor. And I just definitely appreciate her being here because I know she is, one, very passionate, um, and she definitely will you know, keep everything very real. That is what everybody loves about her. And that's why she is the assistant program director, because everybody loves her. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me. And I would definitely like to introduce our other guest. Uh, his name is Dathion Sturges. He is a family medicine PA with a focus on chronic disease. Uh, he is also 
the Assistant Professor and Associate Program Director of Regional Affairs, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Medics Northwest University of Washington. And he also has a lot of multiple uh, degrees going on. I definitely want him to introduce uh, the things that he's working on. Not only is he a uh, you know, master's in uh, physician assistant studies, but he also has other accolades that I definitely want him to touch upon as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for that warm welcome, Clarice. Um, so I call it the alphabet soup. Um, yes. I, I, I have a, a certification in healthcare informatics, um, as well as I'm a certified health education specialist. Um, I got these certifications along my path to get my PhD, which I hope, fingers crossed, to be done with um, in May of um, 2021. Um, and that is a dual focus in health promotion, health education with the um, focal area on higher ed. So thank you. Of course. This is also a person that I recently met maybe a couple of years ago at APA, And it was kind of like we had our own little black caucus meetup uh, there. And ever since then, I've kept Dacian right by my side. He's definitely somebody that I look up to because he's just taking charge as far as being a black PA, the representation, you know, his multiple degrees and just making an impact, um, you know, on his community and where she's working. So I definitely appreciate you coming along and joining me on this podcast as well. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Um, before we focus more on the black PA aspect, who would like to give us a quick history of the PA profession for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the distinction between, say, a PA or a nurse or a PA and a, a, a general practitioner, for example. So, Dathion, because I'm old, okay, <laughs> I figured I would take Season. this one. Yes, yes, okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, mature, whatever you want to call it. I just, I've been a PA for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and as someone who's been a PA for over 30 years, oh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm always very interested <laughs> in, in teaching people about the history of my profession. I am incredibly uh, honored to be a PA, and I'm therefore also incredibly protective of my profession and what it is and what we do and who we are. So who are or what is a PA? Sort of the general definition is a PA is a person who is specially trained to perform many of the functions that you would associate with a traditional physician. A PA can take a medical history, can do a physical examination, can diagnose and treat patients pretty much in any particular specialty. We also are known for our work in primary care and being able to take care of patients throughout the lifespan. This is a profession that's fairly new. It's been around almost as long as I have, so about 55 years or so, um, and was started out of the dearth of medical professionals available to provide general health care for people in rural areas, especially in places like North Carolina down in sort of the Southeast. So um, the, the PA profession, it was brought up that way, you know, in, in working with the community, in working in primary care, in being able to take care of people throughout the lifespan. And I'm always working with my current students to make sure that they understand that and understand what the history is and what they need to take forward into the profession, you know, into the future. That's really helpful. Um, Jason, would you like to add anything to that? I want to add a tidbit. Since we are talking about Black PAs, I want to talk about Richard Smith, 
who was the um, founder of MedEx. So in the spirit of black excellence, I do want to highlight one of our early pioneers, Dr. Richard Smith, um, who was a graduate of Howard University, um, which is an HBCU in Washington, D.C. He um, had the the wherewithal to what he called the mantra of multiply his hands, where he, um, as a Peace Corps volunteer, um, saw um, that there was a need for healthcare extenders um, in other countries abroad. And he brought that same model back into the United States and simultaneously started the MedEx program um, along with um, Dr. Stead, who founded the PA program at Duke University. Um, so he had a model that was MedEx International, where he actually um, had this textbook and this program set up where he taught um, non-physician extenders to provide care to where there was a gap in um, the access. So I want to highlight him and his program is still going strong is where I work right now, uh, 50 years later. Um, so I just wanted to make sure to highlight one of our first pioneers was actually a black man. But one of the a funny story is that uh, his son, so he moved to Hawaii after he left Washington and his son went to school with President Obama. And before he died, President Obama came to his house and honored him. They have pictures together. And while he was there, they realized that we were classmates in school. So uh, I think one of the ultimate things was being honored by President Obama before he passed away. But um, he passed away probably about two or three years ago. Thank you, Dathion and Sandra. So let's um, just start with some of the healthcare disparities that you guys are currently seeing, or what are some of just the chronic healthcare disparities that you're witnessing, whether it's in your practice or what you're currently focused on teaching, and you know, ones that are, you are most concerned about as well. So as well as being an educator, I also do clinical practice. I currently uh, do clinical practice in clinical trials, infectious disease clinical trials. So that's something that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later when we talk about COVID-19. So before I worked in clinical trials, I worked in primary care HIV, and I did that for about 15 years. And that was probably toward the end of the 80s until into the early 2000s. Healthcare disparities, it was, it, for me, it was really very interesting. And the time when I went to PA school many, many years ago, we really didn't talk about healthcare disparities, but I noticed it in my practice. And a, a lot of what I saw was health literacy, not people not really understanding what the interaction in a medical setting should be, not understanding necessarily uh, how their body actually works. I spent a lot of time in the beginning of my career making sure to educate my patients so that they would be able to advocate for themselves if I wasn't there. So if they went to the hospital, for instance, they were they would be able to advocate for themselves. They would be able to tell people, you know, even if they couldn't say the names of the pills, well, this is the pill that I take for this. Okay. Or, or this is, this is why I do this particular practice, you know, as part of my own healthcare. Health literacy was really the big thing that I saw as a health disparity in my patients. And then there were some of the more common chronic things that you would oftentimes see with patients, which would be not having access to uh, particularly healthy foods. Uh, some of my patients living in areas that were not very safe, um, that causing stress, just life stress, you know, as well as impeding their ability to be able to be healthy. How about you, Dathian? 
First, this the health disparity is really as a gap. Um, it represents a gap. It can be among populations, um, within populations, and they uh, manifest in a lot of different ways. Cause, so like Sandra said, a lot of things that she mentioned really were what we call social determinants of health that um, really affect the bottom line when it comes to morbidity and mortality um, in populations. So speaking you know, in general, when we talk about health disparities, with my background has been more in chronic disease management and family medicine with a heavy emphasis on diabetes. Um, education and health literacy is a vital piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, we mentioned self-direction, but we have to teach that self-direction and give them the tools that how to navigate um, the health system, which is a disparity of its own, mm -hmm. uh, a social determinant of its own, because it's very hard to navigate health systems. Um, some of the biggest things that um, contribute to disparities um, are transportation issues. You know, we set appointments for nine in the morning, but we're not aware that maybe our patient takes the bus and it's three different stops to get there. So they're late and we end up canceling their, their appointment. So, or it could be food insecurity. A lot of things we don't ask about when it comes to food insecurity, we will give mandates to eat a low sodium diet or, or a low fat, low cholesterol diet. But what if our patient is homeless and the only access to food is a, a hot dog on white bread every day? Um, so it, it starts with us to, to recognize what are some of the contributors to our patient outcomes and not blame the patients. Um, the, there, um, when we talk about institutional and systemic issues, those are systemic issues. And a lot of times they are not um, able to, to um, thwart those things because there's systemic oppression, institutional oppression, which manifests in these social determinants. For example, um, when we talk about housing, you know, minority communities have most likely been relegated to areas what we call red line districts where there are not many jobs. So there are not many taxes that fund schools or fund different um, community outreach. There are not, there are food deserts where there aren't any um, fresh foods, but there's a McDonald's on every corner, um, things like that. So, you know, we have to really do our due diligence as providers to learn about our patients, especially our underrepresented patients, um, in order to achieve better health outcomes. So when it comes to disparities, it is a kind of a vicious loop until we peel back the onion and try to address um, each issue, which is not an easy thing. But if we have at least one person doing that and advocating for patients in the clinic or even in the classroom, that's one or two or three, which turns to hundreds of more patients that have been touched by your goodness and your, your um, wherewithal, and we can achieve some better health outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And we hope that, you know, this podcast can be a small part of that, you know, creating a platform for that. Um, I think it's interesting the um, talking about, you know, redlining because redlining happened decades ago, yet, you know, the ramifications of that are clearly still happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that's, it, it started decades ago, but is continues right until this day in many areas of the United States of America. And thank you so much for saying that, Dathion, and bringing forward, paying forward Dr. Smith's original mission and his vision for the PA profession. So that was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Clarice, how about Manhattan and uh, New York City? I think you work in both. What are the disparities that you're seeing there? 
I guess it's a little biased because I'm I work in the Upper East Side. So that demographic is it's mainly Caucasian. People have money, you know, because we're getting patients from the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side. I mean, people are very affluent. So, you know, I'm not really seeing too many patients that will necessarily not have the insurance or, you know, they're, you know, coming late for appointments and things of that nature. Our population is pretty, you know, straightforward, especially since I work in orthopedics, everything's elective. So these are people that, hey, you know, I want to, I need to get a total hip, total knee replacement and pretty much have the funds or at least the insurance to get it. The only time I will see you know, the person that probably will need some help or things of that nature will be, you know, will occasionally get the homeless person, uh, you know, that fell, you know, in the train station. Now it's just like, okay, you know, we're a hospital. We're always going to treat everybody, but now it's a social factor. Now, where's this patient going to go? This patient doesn't have, you know, a home. They come from a shelter. You have a cast on your, on your leg. How are they going to maintain that cast? Are they really going to come back to a follow-up appointment? And it's kind of the fact that we just, you know, fixed you, but at the same time, how are we going to maintain what we just did? And then it's a good chance we might send, you know, see you right back, you know, at Linux Hill, you know, right back at the hospital. But I do have a per diem, uh, job as well, which kind of balances me uh, a bit. Um, I work with, uh, I work in pediatrics, and these are people. Um, these are pretty much all of the kids that are crossing the border, and they are coming into our center. And basically, uh, as a PA and th- some of the MPs that are working there, we're kind of first line medical that they're seeing. So even if they weren't seeing, you know, back in Central America, which is where most of the kids are coming from, we're just pretty much, you know, doing their history, physical exams, we're doing their vaccinations and we're doing sick call. They also have a school system kind of built for them there as well, just to kind of transition them from wherever they came from, because most of them are either going into foster care or we're trying to uh, connect them back with their parents that are here in the U.S. But we have to make sure all their paperwork and vaccinations and things of that nature are up to date. So it's kind of a different reality check there because one, none of these patients speak English. And once I do find out the stories, a lot of these patients are crossing the border and coming to the U.S. because one, they were separated from their parents. They're coming over here by what they call coyotes. Um, One patient I had, she basically was maybe like 13, 14 years old. They crossed with no shoes. They have all this foot fungus. They have lice, you know, they have all these scars. Some of them are pregnant at 14. So not only am I vaccinating the mother, but I'm also vaccinating their two-month-old, you know, baby. And a lot of them are running away from gang violence. People were, you know, kids were raped. So they're going through a lot of trauma, not not only just physically, but they have a lot of psychological trauma that we have to deal with too. So for me, that's kind of like my counterbalance as, you know, these are more, these are people that definitely need a lot more of my help versus my elective patients. And these are people that I feel like I can more have an impact on because I feel like I'm at least helping them in some sort of way and giving them the aid that they need as well. Together, you've described disparities in terms of health literacy. Um, You've described disparities in terms of diabetes and also disparities in terms of um, trauma, in terms of levels of trauma. And I would imagine that those patterns are replicated, you know, right across the country um, to different degrees in different areas. But as Black PAs, how do you see your role in terms of addressing health disparities specifically? And was that part of your motivation to become a PA, you know, to have the opportunity to perhaps tackle some of the the root causes of health disparities? The bottom line of my why um, to become a PA was just that to help 
um, my community. Um, but not only my community, but underrepresented communities. But I feel that it's very important for this representation as a black PA because there are some cultural things that we get and that we understand and are able to teach our colleagues too as re regarding our patients. For example, you know, I always go back to my diabetes days, but you know, I, I had a patient that came in once and you know, they the, the documentation said that, oh, she's doing very well on her diet. She eats greens all the time. Um, and, but her A1C was like 12 and they was like, but we don't understand it. So when I saw this patient, I said, okay, you eat greens. How do you cook those greens? <laughs> oh, I use, a lot, I use fat and I use ham hocks and I use this. I was like, that's the problem, you know? And I add sugar, I add sugar to my greens too, but just to give them a little bit of more flavor. So it's a lot of times it's learning the nuances of culture. Um, you know, we were, I'll remind you that race is more of a social construct. So if we're gonna be talking about race or, or trying to do race-based medicine, which is problematic, we have to remember it's social which means that's culture and that's different other elements that, that inform a, a people. So um, I feel like it's very important for the black representation in the PA field. A lot of times too, it's disarming to our patients. They're able to let their guard down and trust um, a little bit more. But also along the way, like I said, we, we can help our colleagues and, and, and create allyship, though it's not all on our backs to do that. I wanna make sure I put that out there. But if we're willing to do that, um, we can help um, create allies and under, uh, a, a more collective understanding of our patients. And again, like I say, it all boils back down to the health disparities and social determinants of health. I'm going to probably say that pl plenty of times throughout this podcast, but understanding those things will help you understand your patients. I didn't always know those things. I just knew what I knew from my lived experience. But you know, lived experience is one thing, but then also learning and, and putting yourself out there to, to get, get the information and put in your toolkit is, is very important. So I would say that I love being a Black PA. I know I need it. I know my patients are, are elated to see me. I, I get it from all the time. And, you know, it's just a, it's a really good feeling when you have someone, you know, back pre-COVID when they could touch your shoulder or give you a hug and say, you know what, I'm so proud of you. And you know exactly what they mean, you know? And so um, I, that's why I think we're doing this. We're encouraging people to increase this representation. And also, you know, we're doing it on the levels of education too, because it starts in the school uh, if we're not opening the gates to let people in, then we're not going to change um, the demographics of this of this profession. Thank you so much for for sharing that, Dave. And I, it's obvious that comes you know straight from the heart. So, how are you going to follow that, Sandra? <laughs> oh boy, I don't really know. It's like it, <laughs> this is an audio broadcast, but Dave can see me shaking my head at everything that he is saying. Um, Yes. So what brought me to being a PA? So the first thing that brought me to being a PA and not being a physician, for instance, is the fact that I really resonated with the fact that PAs are primary care providers. I wanted to be able to give my patients everything, not just the little thing that they came to see me for. I, and I wanted to be able to do that. And that was something that you oftentimes cannot do because you can't practice outside your scope as a physician. So that was I, my idea originally was to be a physician. I was lucky enough to have a family member 
who was a physician. So the idea of a black medical provider wasn't foreign to me. And actually many members of my family are in various and sundry roles in medicine. My family are either all teachers or they're in the medical profession. But um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, although from my own personal experience, I hadn't had an experience with a black provider. I knew that they existed because they were in my family. But when it came time for me to decide what I wanted to do, that's what called me to the PA profession was the fact that I would be able to help people in my community. I grew up in a predominantly black and Hispanic community. My ultimate goal, actually, when I went to college and then eventually going on to PA school was to come back and to work at the neighborhood community center that where I got my care as a child and I felt that I was taken so well care of. That's what I really wanted to do. It unfortunately did not work out that way. I, I literally, when I graduated from PA school, the first thing, actually before I graduated, the first thing I did was I went back to the center and I was like, can you hire me? And they were like, we don't have any money to hire you. I was like, but I, I went to school essentially to just work here. And I had said that to my doctor when I was still in high school before I left for college. And she was like, oh, okay. And I said, like, no, seriously, I'm going to come back in a few years and I want a job. And unfortunately they weren't able to hire me. So I ended up getting a job at a different hospital. But even with that, I wanted to make sure that I was working with underrepresented populations, which is one of the reasons why I went into HIV. Just the idea you know, as Dathian said, to, to be there, to be a, a physical, visual reminder that this can be you too. Um, I enjoy any time I, I get an opportunity to speak at a school because I want them to see the doctor can look like you, right? You know, because little kids, especially, you know, they're doctor, they say doctor, they don't really understand the whole PA concept, but, mm-hmm. you know, the doctor can look like you. That person in the white coat, that person can look like you. I was never so excited to see Doc McStuffins on TV and to see this little black girl who was, you know, being a doctor, being a veterinarian, working with her stuffed animals. And it was just these types of representations are so important. And people don't sometimes realize that, you know, at the time and how and how they will change the lives of people who are in your sphere when they can see you in that position. So it really sounds as if part of the attraction of the PA profession is that you get to you, you get to have a broader remit, and to take that remit as broad as possible means you, you're you're almost approaching kind of a more holistic approach. And then the holistic approach, when it includes the cultural elements and the fact that you're um, you're a walking example of your doctor can look like you, um, that's about as holistic as you can get. That's really terrific insight. Thank you for that. And, and how about you, Clarice? For me, I just, I knew I always wanted to do something in the medical field. And I, I just knew that I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't want to be a nurse. So for me, it was more of a technical decision at first. Um, once I went to college, one of my colleagues was actually applying to PA school and she was the person that actually introduced me to the profession. I was just like, hey, this is, this sounds like a pretty good fit. You know, I, I like the fact that one, you know, we have a lot of autonomy, especially on, you know, you know, depending on where you work, like I work in the OR. So depending on the surgeon, I'm first assisting, you know, I'm making, you know, incisions, I'm drilling, I'm sawing, you know, I'm doing, I'm closing wounds, you know, by myself. 
And, you know, I like the fact that, you know, as long as you're with someone that's willing to teach you, they're, you know, willing to let you fly, basically. I also like the fact that we have a lot of flexibility. So, you know, like I said, I work in mainly orthopedics, but then I have a side gig in pediatrics. So with the PA profession, we don't necessarily have to go back to school and do residency like a doctor would if they wanted to change their specialty. We're pretty much trained in all areas. So for me, it's just kind of getting retrained on the job. So we can always bounce back from different things. So I like the flexibility of it. And also, you know, lifestyle. I think that's very, very, very important. Um, You know, we have, I feel like PAs, we have a very good uh, work-life balance. You know, you're able to work a full-time gig. You can work two part-time gigs. You can work a per diem gig for all, you know, if you want to as well. So, you know, you have a lot of choices, a lot of autonomy. And, um, you know, it's like, I like those underdog positions. It's still a, a profession that a lot of people don't know about. So I love to educate people. They always think I'm the doctor when I come in or maybe a physical therapist. I don't know why. But, you know, um, when I tell them, you know, I'm a PA and a lot of people, again, still don't know what we do. They're like, oh, okay, basically. So you're like a doctor. And, you know, sometimes you just got to, um, you know, I'm just like, especially with my elderly population, I'm like, okay, you know, what if they'll still come in the room, even though you say you're a PA, they'll still call you doctor. So it is what it is, but at least, you know, I'm expressing to them exactly what I do. And they feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that, you know, I work alongside by side with the doctor. So I'm pretty much their right hand man, their right wing, that sort of thing. The money's pretty good too. So <laughs> that's also a plus. <laughs> that's the trifecta. you got the, the you, it's well-paid, it's flexible. You can change around specializations. Um, I mean, it really does sound as if, as if you find the profession extremely rewarding. Definitely. And just being able to, you know, work with different people, um, you know, definitely like I want to touch upon what Dathion said, I definitely will go into certain patients' room, especially like a Black patient. And, you know, they'll give you that, I'm so proud of you. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. you're like a doctor. I'm like, yeah. And they're just like, I I, I can't believe it. Like, I, it's nice to see someone that looks like me again, like someone that they can relate to, someone that they can talk to and just feel a little bit more comfortable. Not saying it's intimidating when you're, you know, with somebody else, but again, it's that comfort level. And when you're in the hospital, that's already uncomfortable as it is because you're likely in there for something that possibly has gone wrong. You know, for me, you broke something. So no one's happy about that. So you want to make sure people, one, you know, you want to make sure that they at least like you, because if they like you, then they'll definitely trust you and they'll feel a lot more comfortable working around you. Clarice, I'm going to hand back to you because I know you've got a couple of questions you'd like to ask, um, a couple of specifics that you'd like to cover. Sure. So um, let's just talk about some of the things that are going on currently. Uh COVID-19, that's definitely a big factor in all of our lives right now. So um, just want to start touching upon in terms of like access, treatment, vaccinations, clinical trials, uh, things like that. What exactly are you seeing going on with COVID-19, you know, and what are, you know, exactly some of your concerns with, you know, what's been going on with this pandemic? And then just to piggyback on that, how do you feel the PA profession uh, has been contributing to this pandemic? I'm going to start with Sandra first. Yes, COVID-19. So because I work in clinical trials and infectious disease clinical trials specifically, we have been or I have been very involved with COVID-19 since the beginning. Um, In terms of clinical trials, and, and I have to say this is another thing about being able to look like your provider. Um, So one of the things about my particular office is that the office and myself specifically make a point of making sure that any clinical trials we have are being offered to everyone. Sometimes in medicine, there are 
conscious and unconscious bias, okay, regarding clinical trials. Um, people will say, well, we're not going to offer it to a person of color, okay, because we don't think that they're going to be accepting of clinical trials because people of color don't like to be in clinical trials. My mother taught me that somebody saying no to me won't hurt me. Okay. It's just a word. So I made it a point to ask everyone. Okay. My thing is that I don't make the decision about who should be in a clinical trial. I let, you know, the patient make the decision about whether or not they want to be in a clinical trial. So um, one of the things about our group is that we turned out to have one of the highest percentage of people of color and women in the early COVID-19 trials that were running for things like remdesivir, which is one of the drugs that was uh, approved to treat, um, and some of the uh, antibody uh, therapies that have been approved to treat COVID-19. So when they went back and looked at the data, they came back to us and they said, you know, you guys were unbelievable who you were able to get into. And I was like, it's not that who we were able to get into trials. And we know that people of color are disproportionately affected and disproportionately affected severely and disproportionately die of COVID-19. So how can you have a trial that does not contain these people when they're the ones that were in the hospital? It was very confusing to me. But okay, so we, we you know, they came back to us, the companies came back and they were like, how did you do this? And our, my response was, we asked everyone. Okay. It didn't matter who you were. Our hospital at one point was 100% COVID-19. So we asked every single patient. We would just literally go from room to room and say, you might be eligible for this trial. Is it okay if we talk to you about it for a minute? You know, are you interested? So we had everyone in our trials. We, we for the convalescent plasma trial, we had to have so many different uh, consent, the consent form in so many different languages. <laughs> the people who were running the trial were like, are you kidding me? We had consent forms in Hindi, in Russian, in uh, Chinese in, I mean, cause, because we approached every single patient. Okay. Um, so that was something that I did and brought the other people in the team around to that way of thinking as well. You know, I explained to them that as far as I'm concerned, everyone is a clinical trials candidate. Let them say no, no, never hurt you. And I mean, this is data that we need. And I would say this to patients. I was like, listen, this is an important new disease, emerging disease that we know is affecting these different groups of people. We need to know, do these drugs work? You know, we can't extrapolate from other people's work. And so many people were like, you know, I never thought about it that way. And they were like, listen, there's, if there's nothing else that that's available, you know, I am very happy to try this. So it worked out really well. We had, I mean, we had about 150 people on various and sundry trials between March and probably about July. So a lot of people. In terms of what I saw in my hospital, which was wonderful, we have a, we have a very strong PA team as part of the hospitalists in our, in my hospital. So most especially when we got probably, I'd say around June, most of the care that patients were receiving in my hospital came from PAs and from physicians in training. So residents, 
um, a few interns, but mostly residents. And so it was so wonderful just to see how the PAs were working with this, the different patients. You know, sure, were they afraid? Yes. But were they afraid in the way that it would make them not take care of people? No. Okay. They took their time. They wore their PPE. They worked just fantastically within the hospital. I was really very proud of my profession in jumping in and making that, you know, commitment to be able to help people during such an incredibly stressful, you know, time. I mean, nobody ever thought they'd be in a pandemic, right? This is something that we teach our students in class about the, you know, influenza pandemic of 1918. And we teach them a little bit about the influenza pandemic of 2008, 2009, but it wasn't, it was really more of an epidemic than a pandemic, but, you know, we never thought that we would live through anything like this. And PAs have really been on the forefront, I think, of providing care to people. That's great. I'm glad that, um, you know, you're definitely taking charge with the clinical trials. I'm just going to hope he's listening. Dr. Fauci, I think, you know, you should have Sandra working by your side during this pandemic. You know, it'd be great if we had a PA on, you know, on his infectious disease team. I don't know if he doesn't, but let's just, let's let's put it out there. Let's put it in the atmosphere. And how about you, Dathion? So, I, I, you know me, I'm going to take it back to social terms of health. I'm just going to talk about equity. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, um, if well, maybe some of you don't know. So the U- USA is dead last when it comes to healthcare outcomes among the developed nations in this world. But we're number one, rah, 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 when it comes to healthcare spending. That's a mismatch. Um, and most of that spending is not toward the social drivers or social determinants that actually affect our health. So we were in for an expected, but for some unexpected, um, treat when it came to COVID-19 because we have so many things that will negate us um, achieving good health. So socioeconomic status is one of the biggest drivers when it comes to um, health outcomes because let's think about it. Um, those people who are living urban areas or or um, in public housing, there's, uh, they're closed in spaces, there's tight spaces, there's lots of people on top of each other boom, that's more transmission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some people may not have transportation they're relying on public transit. Boom, there's another uh, mode of transmission. Some people don't have the privilege to work from home and be on Zoom and they have to go out and work. Boom, there's another transmission. I could go on and on, but I won't. There's a good paper. Um, I don't know how I do this, but I pulled out my head. Um, by Rolston and Galea called... Um, COVID-19, the social determinants of health, is recently published here in 2020, but it goes into more detail about all the different um, social drivers that have led to the um, the increase in the disparities amongst um, Black populations, as well as other populations of color. Um, you know, I want to go back to what Sandra said about the implicit and explicit biases or conscious and unconscious biases. We have to dismantle that because you are, that also leads to adverse um, consequence when it comes to especially a new novel disease like COVID-19. So providing that more, more access is going to actually help um, all patients, especially when you're in a pandemic, you want to make sure you're reaching everyone. So that means putting in equitable practice. Um, also dismantling that the notion of, you know, um, black people are not go- going to participate in, in, in trials or, or vaccines. Yes, there is a lot of misinformation out there regarding this vaccine right now. 
You know, some I was listening to NPR this morning. They were saying that in the Jamaican community, they are saying that this is the mark of the beast. So if mm-hmm. you get injected and so people are believing that. So it's, it's our duty to kind of dispel some of that, mm-hmm. but also acknowledging the history behind why people are mis- have mistrust and distrust. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's their call. But for us to be able to acknowledge um, the historical trauma and try to help someone work toward having a, a, a change of heart or change of mind. I think that's what we can do. We're not mm. going to change everyone's minds, but um, I always say medicine is not finite. It is a, it is a sociology. It is medical anthropology. It is psychology. Mm. It's a history. History plays so much um, of a role in, in our patient decision-making. And I think that that was seen a lot with this COVID-19 that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation, but it's easy to believe that because of the the roots of which a lot of this distrust comes from. Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's um, significant when both of you are saying, first of all, um, Sandra, you're saying, ask everyone. Ask universally. And then, Dathian, you need to give some time to acknowledge and work through and, and hear people's concerns. But at the end of that, you're gonna you're gonna get potential engagement and participation. Yes. So so for me, I mean, I've been working in clinical trials now for a long time, and even when somebody comes in and says, "Nope, I really want to do this. I'm ready," I always tell them, "Let's take it some time. Let's go over it, over this information again. Then go home and think about it, and I will call you the next day." Because sometimes people come to things with disinformation, as you were saying, Dathion, and they, they totally think something that's not really true. They think that this, you know, experimental treatment is going to save them. So, you know, I need to have them understand that we don't know. That's why we're doing this. It's like, yes, you may have heard something, you know, about this that said it was great, but understand that we don't know if that works for everyone. So, yeah, I, Having that education, going back to my whole thing about health literacy, having that education, understanding what a clinical trial is, you know, uh, being able to get someone to understand pretty sophisticated concepts, okay? And I always say that medicine is really not that hard, okay? Pretty much anyone can really do this. I mean, I hate to, to say it like that, but, you know, if you can break it down in a way that people understand, then they can make an informed choice. And that's the most important thing to me. It's just making that informed choice. Um, I just wanted to touch on one thing very quickly, um, because I know you mentioned clinical trials, and that just made me think of a uh, time when I was working during COVID. Um, Because, you know, it was just so new to everybody, we were literally one day we would get a protocol on how to treat patients. You know, the next day it's like, no, take off the vitamin C. We're not doing that anymore. But I noticed that um, in my ward uh, where I was working, we they kind of called it like the, it was like the segue. Most of these patients had already been on a telemetry floor. They've kind of gone through a lot with COVID and now they're pretty much waiting to either placement for home or placement for rehab. So, you know, these patients were so-called stable, but they really weren't because by the time they got to us, kind of between days seven to 10 of COVID, that's when patients would start to crap out on us. So they might've started doing well with the steroids, but between that time period, they would literally either start having PEs or we'd have to send them back upstairs. But um, during one of those times I had a patient 
and he was a white Jewish male and he was pretty young, maybe in his forties. And he seemed to be okay. Like he wasn't having, you know, a lot of bad symptoms, like a lot of other patients were, or maybe his neighbor, but he told me that he was on a clinical trial. And I noticed that out of all my 20 patients, how did he manage to get in here on a clinical trial? But like, you know, grandma next to him is on nothing two doors down. I have two people on more or on, um, that's on basically on palliative care. They're, you know, unfortunately we're dying on us. And I was just wondering, like, how did this happen? And that's why I would constantly call you during COVID, Sandra, and just say, how can I get the clinical trials in my hospital? Or is it in the hospital? Is because like just where I'm working, I'm not up on the floors in the regional or ICU units. Like, I don't know what they're doing ID wise. I know we definitely don't have infectious disease PAs in my hospital. But I was just like, I was I was upset because I wanted to know how did he get access? How did the white Jewish guy get access? But most of the minority patients that I'm seeing have no access. You know, you can't even talk to your loved one. So you're definitely not going to just come out of the blue and ask for, can I be on a clinical trial? You let alone don't even know what's going on. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I wish that that's something that we could have more forefront because again, like you said, a lot of people don't know. I didn't really know because I'm just like, I just want everybody to survive. I'm just trying to keep my patients alive. But if there is something new or something that we can trial that can maybe make a difference in somebody, you know, getting better, getting off of five liters of oxygen versus my patients that are on morphine drips, then, you know, I definitely wanted to be all for it. Jason, you definitely touched on a couple of things that I thought of about too, is that you guys both mentioned about the um, biases, the unconscious biases that we have in the medical field and dismantling that. And it's funny because I actually mentioned this before, um, Roth, when we were talking um, last podcast of how when I was first, you know, a PA my first year, I'm green, I don't know anything, I'm just excited to be working. And one of the patients, uh, the nurse nurse called me from the PACU saying the patient's in a lot of pain. You have to come upstairs. You know, they just had spine surgery. So I run upstairs, see the patient. And they're like, oh, you know, they just have a case of the IIIs. And I'm like, the what? And they're like, the IIIs. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, you know, they're Spanish. So, you know, they're crying in pain. They go, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was just like, well, let's just, you know, this is the first stereotypical, you know, thing that I've learned, you know, about you know, Spanish, Latino patients. So, you know, and I think that goes back to, again, historic times, you know, as far as, you know, Black people, how they, you know, they don't recognize our pain, you know, because we don't have pain. But, you know, let alone this Latino patient, you, you know, if I were to go with this bias, I could miss something. I had a patient who, yeah. you know, yes, may have been screaming, I, 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 but guess what? She was in pain. You know, she did end up, you know, they did end up having like a, a hematoma, you know, because they just had spinal surgery. So sometimes this pain is real and we can't just go with these cultural stereotypical, you know, biases of this is what this culture or this race does. This is how they react to pain. This is how they react in general. So we're going to brush it off. We'll miss something. And next thing you know, this patient's dead because, you know, we're going against what people think. So I think just looking at a patient from the whole center of I'm a medical practitioner, I'm here to treat, I'm here to diagnose. And instead of like, oh, well, let me look at the race or the culture of this patient. And I know that, you know, a black person does this or a Latino patient does that or Jewish people. Yeah, they do come in on, you know, they want to leave by Friday before Shabbat or, you know, it's just like you have to respect these things. And I think for me, that's one thing I'm learning, you know, especially being a black PA, I feel as though you kind of just have to jump into things and you have to learn everybody's culture. You you just you can't just sit there and just 
focus on you being black. I feel like that's also an advantage to us is because, you know, we're, you know, we're kind of like looked upon as sometimes the underdog, but it's just like, yeah, but I can relate to everybody. I'm understanding where everybody's coming from. So I'm not going to be that person that's just going to brush them off and not, you know, tend to their needs. I'm going to look at them as a whole person and not, you know, you know, be, I don't even want to say racist, but be racist towards somebody or, you know, culturally biased against what they're going for. I think what I'm hearing you say is that um, you're acutely aware of the damage that stereotyping can do. Definitely. And yeah, and and Clarice, you know, when you said before that even though you tell them I'm a PA and they call you doctor, you have to understand that the way that you treat people is why they call you doctor, because that's what they expect a doctor to do. So Mm -hmm. when you treat everyone with respect, when you listen to everyone and don't brush them off, that I, I found that out when very early in my career that the people I, cause I would say do the same thing. I was like, I'm not a doctor. They're like, well, you're a doctor to me because that's what doctors should do. And I was like, huh, I never thought about it that way. You know, and, and patient told me this years ago, you know, I start when I got out of PA school, I was barely 23. You know, my patients were in their thirties and forties. Most of my patients were older than I was. And, you know, they, they, I'll never forget the gentleman said to me, he's like, but you listen to me. She's, he's like, the reason why I switched to you from the doctor was because the doctor never listened to anything I said. He said, you listen to everything I say and you ask me questions and we work on things. And I'm actually, he said, I feel better than I did before you got here. He said, so that's why you're always going to be a doctor to me. <laughs> Testament to how PAs are, because a lot of times you meet patients and they'll say, I didn't even see my doctor much like they might have saw them for five minutes for that visit. But most of the visit was basically being seen by the PA. And I think during this COVID um, COVID-19 pandemic, I feel as a PA, you know, we've definitely gotten a lot more recognition pretty much all of the COVID units were being run by ACPs or advanced clinical practitioners. So they were pretty much being run by PAs and NPs in our hospital because we only have but a handful of internal medicine doctors and residents and ICU, you know, PAs and, you know, doctors as well. Once they started running short, they had to start dipping into PAs from all the specialties. And pretty much we were running the units alongside with the attendings. Like it would be, you know, we were around with the attendings in the morning and then pretty much the PAs and MPs were running the floors uh, pretty much by ourselves for the shift. And, you know, we can always call and reach out to them whenever we need help. But I feel as though during this pandemic, um, I hope people can finally recognize what a PA can do and that, you know, we are fully capable to, you know, run units, see patients, run codes. One of my, you know, friends in the ICU, I watched her run a cold. The doctor wasn't even, like, they were on their way, but she literally ran the entire cold on a COVID patient. So it just shows you that, you know, we can definitely, you know, make a big impact. I definitely want to segue to Daytheon. So I know your role, um, you know, with all these accolades, your role includes being the associate program director um, and also uh, working with diversity at the University of Washington. Um, Can you just tell us a bit about that? How did you get into that role? What inspired you to kind of take on that position? And why is it so important, even though it's obvious, but why is it so important to promote diversity? I guess the phrase is see something, say something. (laughs) Um, You know, I I have, I am a black male PA. We're very underrepresented. I'm a black man in America. You know all the challenges that come with that. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes if you go through things, you just want it to be better for others. And so that is kind of how I fell into this role. You know, I've, it was told in the past that this was low hanging fruit, you know, and I'm like, apparently you don't have my lived experience because this is high yield fruit to me. Um, <laughs> okay. But um, really starting more so with lived experience. And then as I got into my PhD too, looking at the different disparities um, has really influenced the direction I wanted to go. So I kind of started out first with Project Access, which is um, Clarice participates in in New York City. It's where we go into um, underrepresented minority schools um, and different areas in which we introduce the PA profession and, and kind of let them see that I'm a P- PAs like you, like I'm just like you. Um, and we basically answer any question that they have. And from there, I moved on to get on the Diversity and Inclusion Mission Advancement Commission for PAEA, where we align with key strategies um, for our national organization and work along with the strategic plan, um, for which I currently chair that, um, that commission now. And then I also am the Cultural Perspectives Editor, soon to be Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion section of um, the Journal Physician Assistant Education. So it's really for me to, to amplify voice and give, and give others the, the, the leeway and the opportunity space to also um, join in on that work and amplify voices and, and create sustainable actions by having people at the at the policy level um, for lack of better words to help kind of create these avenues for more diversity but I always pose the question what is diversity without inclusion a lot of people tout and like to have diversity which has so many different definitions but most people look at it like identity diversity so race Um, but okay so when you get then get more diversity. Now, what are your practices? How are you tackling this? Um, And then again, too, we talk about fairness, but fairness isn't fair when you're talking about social justice. So you have to say, what is justice without equity? You know, so I I am very blessed that when I joined at the University of Washington, um, the chair of family medicine, Dr. Paul James, uh, before I even got there, actually had me um, as the co-chair for the um, Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Commission for the entire Department of Family Medicine. So that that is run by a researcher and a PA. So, again, that's representation. Right. And then my program director, Terry Scott, who is my mentor, um, prioritized. Um, we call it JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and create an associate program director position around that. So not only now are you are you creating time and space for me to do this work, you're also paying me for this work. And I, I bring that up because a lot of times we are asked and tasked to do a lot of things uh, regarding diversity and inclusion without any kind of remuneration. It just looks like um, people think that it is a duty of ours because we are black or we are underrepresented to do this work. Now, a lot of us love doing this work and, and, and will continue doing this work. But I also want to recognize the disparity that exists there, too is when other people come in doing talks and things like that, they're getting paid. And, but, you know, we're looked at like, okay, it's, it's a duty. So I, I, I say all those things because these are things we bring to the table. And in my discussions, it gives me a platform in order to, to say these things and to have people to consider these things. And when we talk about um, diversity inclusion, we have to talk about anti-racism too, um, and specifically anti-Black racism. Um, when it comes to admissions, 
when it comes to retention, when it comes to hiring practices. Um, so looking at things from more of a holistic standpoint, when we're looking at students, it's not always about grades. It's about their lived experience. It's about what other uh, attributes do they bring to the table. Um, for example, someone who has a 3.1 GPA with how competitive PA school is now, it's kind of hard, remarkably kind of hard for someone who has a good GPA, like a 3.1, 3.2 to get, in, get into PA school. But did that person have a Pell Grant? Did they work 20 to 40 hours a week? Did, you know, what kind of community service are they doing? These are the things that we have to start discussing and bringing to the table too, because we're gatekeepers when it comes to um, the PA profession and, and the public trusts us so in order for us to make a big difference, we have to really change our, our ways of looking at things and our things and the way we practice. And even in that, in that work that I do too, it goes to faculty and staff as well. Um, at UW right now in MedEx, we have a huge representation of URM uh, faculty and staff now are, and we have these frank discussions, though they may not be comfortable all the time. These are conversations we have to have. We have people at the table who, who have a collective understanding of some of the nuances that comes with, you know, maybe something someone said that has a racist undertone that they didn't even recon recognize or has some type of bias, but it's being brought up and discussed. So that, that's in a nutshell kind of what I do. And, and it basically spans all the campuses. We have five different campuses. Um, we have Kona, Hawaii. We have um, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, Seattle, Washington, and Anchorage, Alaska as well. So you see, we have so many demographics and different types of people. How important it is to have someone that is focused on JEDI to, to actually create what we call One MedX and keep everyone aligned. Uh, one thing that I started doing, um, after, especially after this upheaval this summer with the murder of, of George Floyd, you know, uh, the world was burned down around me. No one had reached out to say anything to me to check and see if I was okay. You know, I had been in the house, we're, we're quarantined, I'm crying, I'm looking at the news. I'm, I'm Trauma that's inside me has been awakened. And I, I immediately thought about my students and I drafted a letter with Terry Scott and sent it to the students. And they appreciated so much and it opened the door for more conversation. On the eve of the election, because of all the political divisiveness, I, I crafted a letter open again for conversation. And then most recently with this domestic terrorism and insurrection that occurred at the Capitol, I sent a letter and we met and opened the doors for people to talk. And a lot of our black and brown students, um, our Asian students talked about what it feels like looking at that happen on TV and what it feels like to be them in America right now and to let other people just reflect and talk about that. Because we, you know, we might exist in a bubble when it comes to education, but that bubble is easily burst. And every few weeks our bubble is being burst. So we actually tackle these issues too. That's, that's my, my main focus is to bring voice and to amplify voice around these issues so that we can get a better understanding, but also create some sustainable change as well. That was a handful there. You yeah. definitely touched on one thing that um, I kind of wanted to address to you and Sandra, being that I look up to both you guys and I like the way you address that. You know, I could I would consider both of you guys gatekeepers because you guys are both in uh, positions and the uh, programs. What do you think, you know, as far as, yes, Black PAs matter, but how can we get to matter if we don't have that representation? We don't have that representation because we are not in 
school, we are not either graduating, we're not being selected. We don't, you know, let's take it back. You know, we don't know about the profession. So what are, what do you think are some of the things that we can do, whether you're faculty, program director, or, you know, a PA, what are like, or what are, what are just some of the things that we can do to help, you know, bring up this representation? Because I feel like what um, the numbers maybe like between three to 4% Black PAs, um, um, according to APA, I believe. So how can we bring that up to at least some sort of double digits? Because this is pretty much a predominantly white female ran uh, profession. Uh, Sandra, if you have any thoughts. So exactly. So one of the things, and, and, gosh, Daytheon, what everything you said, it was just incredible. Um, one of the things that I did here with my job, it's actually very interesting when you said you should be paid for that. I agree with you. That is a great point. Um, when I took over the associate program directorship here at that this program, one of the things that I did was I made sure to get myself on the admissions committee because our admissions, I felt, was not representative of a program that is located in Times Square in New York City. Now, understanding that the college that sponsors our program is a traditionally Jewish institution it still was not representative of Midtown Manhattan in New York City. So over the last several classes, I've been working very hard to try to make the program more representative. And it has been difficult, as Dathion has described. What has happened is that with the growth of the PA profession, it's become incredibly uh, popular. And so in trying to basically reduce or weed out the number of applications, grades have become a big thing. So we've had many discussions, not just with this program, but with the other campuses um, that are also in the same school about, you know, looking at people in a much more holistic way. And we've decided to reevaluate our admissions process going forward um, for our class of 2025, because we were finding, as I said, that, that our classes were not truly representative of the areas in which our schools are located. So we're definitely working on that. I love the fact that you crafted a uh, letter to your students. That in our setting came from the upper administration of the school itself. And no one, as far as I know, has even touched on what happened on Wednesday, you know, with our students. Um, we have meetings with them over Zoom all the time. We have town halls and different things. But um, I think our upper classmen, they had a meeting on Sunday, so they may have discussed it there, but our lower class, we haven't, and they're actually coming in later on today. So that's something I'm going to bring up to our uh, program director, and maybe we can talk with the class um, about that a little bit today. It's, I feel like it's so important to be able to bring you know, more Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color into this profession, because these are our patients. So why shouldn't our patients see people who look like them? See people who understand that when somebody says greens, what they real what they mean, right? right? I went to school in North Carolina. So even though I was born and raised in New York, I know what greens are. So as soon as you said that, I was like, oh yeah, they didn't get that at all. 
<laughs> before you even said her, her hemoglobin A1C was so elevated. I was like, oh yeah, mm, they're thinking something totally different. So, um, you know, being able to understand those type of cultural things and, and one of the things we do in our program is we actually have a class, we call it psychosocial medicine, but partly what it is, is to try to introduce our students to some of the different cultures that they're going to encounter in their training here in New York City. Because many people, you know, we talk about America, but America is incredibly segregated. So there are many people who've just never seen people who don't look like them, people who don't have their same socioeconomic status, people who are not the same color as they are. So we, we try very hard to introduce our students to the idea that people are different. They have different cultures. Here are some you know, indications of some different cultures. And here's how we would like you to start thinking about approaching your patients, approaching everyone as human, whatever your preconceived notions may be, go with human first and anything else after. You know, that's what we've tried to do in our program. I hope that other programs are thinking the same way that, you know, you are and I am and being able to open this profession up because I think it's an incredible profession and something that is going to be so helpful going forward to help with health and wellness of everyone in this country. Thank you for that. Speaking of, you know, since we're talking about diversity, I just want to switch gears a little bit. Um, I find that, you know, like as being a PA, we are definitely in very, I would say, diverse specialties, even though our basis and history was primary care. Um, Since you specialize in infectious diseases, could you tell us just more about just being, you know, a day in a life briefly of being an IDPA, um, you know, what that entails? And, you know, especially if someone who is a aspiring PA, uh, how would they even look into getting into that specialty? Because like I said, during this whole COVID, you know, pandemic, there's, and that would have been great to see an IDPA, but no, you know, we might have like five ID doctors that are working in the entire hospital and with 300 to 400 patients, they're going to be spread pretty thin as well. So if you can just touch on that for me. Sure. Well, one of the things about this profession, like I said, because it is such a young profession, 55, 56 you know, years old, um, it does allow us a lot of latitude. So anything that you like, you can probably do. Okay. Um, what happened with me is that I got into infectious diseases because when I came out of school, HIV was the new emerging new disease. And um, getting excited about learning about that in school, I decided that that's what I wanted to do for my career. So um, I basically literally got a list of HIV clinics and started cold calling them to see who would take me. And that's essentially how I got my job. I did a rotation there. I did it before I finished school. So I did a rotation uh, at the clinic. And then once uh, the rotation was over, they actually were, I was lucky enough to be offered a position and stayed there you know, for many years. Many people get their jobs that way. They do a rotation and the, ro- they, the people who they're working with like them so much that they offer them a position. After doing that, like I said, for many years, I decided to move into research. Um, once again, another place where there are not a lot of PAs. I finally, after like 10 years of working in research, I finally met another PA that worked in research. So I do clinical research. I work with, um, uh, CDC, NIH and pharmaceutical companies to work with 
we work with them to get their new drugs approved in many cases. Sometimes it's drugs that are already approved and we're working on looking uh, to get the drug approved for a different indication. So, you know, that's what I do now. And it's a little bit unusual, but it's really incredible. It's a uh, job that oftentimes is filled by nurses. So because of my scope of practice, I'm able to not only be what is called a research coordinator or research assistant, but I'm also what's known as a sub-investigator because of my scope of practice. I'm able to see the patients and evaluate them um, where oftentimes, depending on your scope of practice, you might be able to administer questionnaires and do things like that, but you wouldn't be able to take the patient's history, evaluate their response to the uh, experimental medication, um, provide any treatment if treatment is needed, prescribe the medication, the experimental medication. So I'm able to kind of do it all, which is really great. Um, it, it, it really is very fulfilling to me to be able to sort of see things all the way through, to see a drug that we've used in research eventually, you know, become... You, first approved and then a standard of care. So it's really very exciting. Um, so, but it's, it's a different type of practice because it is limiting in some ways because you're really focused on potential side effects, you know, and effects of this experimental medication on a human person. So it, it is a little different than primary care, but it's very, very interesting. That's a really, really wonderful summary. I think some of our listeners will be uh, getting an insight into, first of all, being a PA. What is a PA? What is an ID PA? What is a PA in an academic setting? So really, we've covered a lot of ground today. And we're running a little bit out of time. So as a final segment, I wanted to ask you if you could just um, focus on calls to action. It's a new year. It's 2021. New year, new administration. Um, hopefully we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with, with COVID. Um, so as change makers, what actions are on your checklist for 2021? On my checklist is to continue sending the elevator down. I, my cousin always says, once you take the elevator to the top, I always push the button to send it back down to keep for so that we can increase our representation, especially when it comes to black PAs. Um, I will continue mentorship, um, which is a big piece of my existence. I mentor um, mostly black men across the nation, actually. And it's been much easier now with Zoom, but I even would you know, fly to their graduations and things like that and see them from the beginning to the end. Um, I want to encourage all of our listeners Black PAs and beyond to mentor, um, to um, identify someone who is interested in becoming a PA and groom that person, uh, uh, give them resources to where the door was once closed, open that door to someone. Sometimes even if you even you even crack the door, they can kick it open. So, you know, I just want to make sure that we continue mentoring and don't forget that we are in a position of privilege now. Not the privilege of education, the privilege of a higher socioeconomic bracket, and the privilege of uh, providing healthcare, quality healthcare to our to our patients. So I want us to use that privilege in order to help someone else um, come up in the ranks. Um, and I guess uh, another thing for 2021 that I want to make sure that we keep going forward is speaking truth to power and always putting forth the message of equity 
and, and not uh, minimizing people's experiences, especially our students, um, as they sometimes get a lot of abuse in the classroom and on rotations. Believe people, create a brave space for them to report such um, transgressions and follow up on that. So I just want to make sure that we protect um, our students and in regards to our URM populations, make sure we have some equitable, inclusive practices. Absolutely, I agree with all of that. Um, mentorship is so incredibly important. Uh, I oftentimes tease my students and tease people who uh, are interested in becoming PAs. I tell them, thank you very much because I'd like to retire one, one day and I can't retire until I know I have someone who's gonna be able to take care of my patients the way that I do. So I absolutely agree. Mentorship is, is definitely number one, two, and three on my list. Um, I would, I hope to, as I said, start to create, continue to create uh, classes at my program that more closely represent the area in which I am. We just started a diversity and inclusion committee here at the school and I'm part of that. And I hope to continue to make that bigger and better with every meeting that we have, get more students involved, do things. After the murder of George Floyd, that's how the committee came about. We've already uh, had a virtual 5K fundraiser and we've we raised along with a generous grant from our Dean, we have $25,000 for scholarship money um, for our underrepresented minority students to attend any of the School of Health Sciences programs. I want to continue to keep that going. Um, I would love to be able at one you know, time to be able to hire other people of color to be in this program. I am currently one of two, yeah, two uh, faculty of color throughout our entire program, which consists of four different programs at this point. So <laughs> I would love to have that. That That's definitely a big plus for me. <clears throat> I keep telling Clarice that she needs to start teaching. She's laughing at me because she knows I always tell her this. Um, I'd like, I, I'd love to bring her on board. I think she would be fantastic. And I'm here. I can mentor you. I'm not going anywhere. Anyway, <laughs> but I had to throw that in there. Um, but yes, and, and speaking truth to power, that is so, so important to be able to advocate for ourselves as medical practitioners, to be able to advocate for our patients and for us as educators to be able to advocate for our students as well. And, and these things are all so important to make sure that going forward in 2021 and 2022, that things just continue to get better and better and better. Like I said in the beginning, I'm incredibly protective of this profession. I only want to see it get better. So that's, that's my wish going forward. You definitely touched on a couple of things that I was going to wish for as well, you know, my calls to action, but definitely one is a program that Dathion mentioned earlier, uh, Project Access. I'm just so disappointed that I actually started to get momentum with that program. I did my first program in New York. One of my friends is a bio teacher, but she's considered kind of like the Mrs. Clark from Lean On Me of that school. Everybody listens to her. Everybody loves her. So I did Project Access. You know, it was great to see the representation of Black PAs, you know, on the screen. And then, of course, I threw in my orthopedic spin and we did a splinting 
um, session with music in the background, a competition. Everybody loved it. They even walked around with the splints later on. I was like, I am not liable for that. I told you to remove it, but they just loved it so much. So I was ready to take that program to every school that I can possibly get my hands on. And then, you know, COVID and everything happens. So that is definitely one thing that when everything settles and it's safe to be in schools, that's definitely uh, one thing that I definitely want to keep pursuing and keep moving on with. And hopefully I can get other uh, Black PAs to join me as well. Uh, teaching is also on my list of to-dos. I've been saying that for a while. And I know Sandra has been uh, trying to get me on board. So, you know, I definitely want to uh, at least be a part of this diversity committee. But I definitely want to get into teaching because I, def- I have been told that, you know, I have a good ma- bedside manner and my students love me. So they think that I'd be a great person to try to share the knowledge with. So that is just something I'm just going to have to take the fear out and just go forward with. And also mentorship, something that you guys both um mention, uh, which is something I think is extremely important. There are so many, and, and, you know, Sandra can attest to it, so many people that I've come across this past year that, you know, are Black and want to become PAs, and they're either in the process or applications. And between Sandra and I, I'm shooting them to her for, like, interview questions, reviewing transcripts, and, you know, pointers, and, you know, I'm calling, they're calling me for moral support. You know, I even had one um, pre-PA come to my house. She had dinner. She was in town literally for one day to come in for interviews. So even just providing them with that sort of support of, hey, I'm in town. This is a familiar face or at least someone in your network that you can come to, you know, and just chill, get ready for your interview. And then, you know, fly out of town. You know, that was also something great. And she's currently in PA school right now. So, you know, it's definitely good to see that process of, you know, pre-PA to PA and just knowing that you might've had some sort of impact on them. So, and just even, you know, looking up to you guys, you know, I definitely, again, want to be faculty, a part of a program. Toro is probably going to be my in at this point. And, you know, Dathion, you know, the alphabet suit, you know, I, I keep telling you every time I speak to you, I want to be like you when I grow up, you know, um, I just want to definitely have that, um, social impact. You know, I definitely want to walk in you guys' footsteps, but I definitely want to thank both of you guys for joining me for this Health Disparities podcast episode. It's definitely been a pleasure to host and to have this platform for these important discussions. I definitely look forward to joining you in future episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Also, if this is your first time that you've tuned in, then please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you go to the Movement is Life Caucus website, you can also sign up for updates and access transcripts on the podcast page. So for now, everyone be safe during this pandemic, stay healthy, and talk to you guys next time.